Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. The fairies, beautiful creations of the olden time, when imagination peopled earth and air, hill and dale, land and water, with bright intelligences whose business it was to watch over favored mortals and to counteract the dark spells of the evil genie, with which, according to popular tradition, creation teemed. Where are ye now? Hello again, and welcome back to the Horror Shots Podcast. I hope you enjoyed last week's edition of the cast about vampires, and if you haven't given that a listen yet, I encourage you to go back and check it out. Also, don't forget to check out my website slash blog slash portfolio at horrorshotsblog.wordpress.com. Now, if you like what you hear and what you see, you could support me on Patreon. If you don't know what that is, well, it's a place where you awesome people can go and support not-so-awesome people like me. What this allows me to do is provide you with more and better content, be it podcasts or photography, or writing, or any updates in general. Uh, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash horrorshots. Now that that's all out of the way, let's get on to today's episode. We've all heard about these mystical and magical creatures in the past. They've been featured in lore and popular media for centuries. They're small and mischievous, and little creatures with an unquenchable curiosity. Have you figured it out yet? Probably because the episode is titled as such. There goes the mystery. Uh, of course I'm talking about fairies. Yes, think Tinkerbell and her magical pixie dust. But what do we learn from last cast? Most, if not all, legends and stories have some basis in reality. As per usual, I'll be going into the history and entomology of what fairies actually are. Before we get into facts and real-life encounters, let's look at some common thoughts and perhaps misconceptions about these fluttery little friends. I've mentioned Tinkerbell prior, and she seems to be the most popular conception of what a fairy is. And it's not an awful rendition of the traditional fairy. She's small and jovial, and... She also likes to play games and tricks on people, but she's also quite helpful, kind of like a guardian at times. Of course, there are little things called fairy tales, we're all familiar with them. Now, why would these fables be named after fairies? Could it be that people associate magical fantasies with these little creatures, or is it implied that fairies wrote or told said stories? Well, the real reason is much simpler, and apparently sprung from a French phrase, conte de fille, and I'm not French, so apologize in advance if I butchered that, uh, but that translates into fairy tales. The term became so commonplace that it was used in the Grimm Tales and by Hans Christian Eriksen. But exactly what is a fairy tale? I know it's a bit off topic, but I feel looking into all aspects involved with whatever I'm researching has to be investigated. And you can't talk fairies without fairy tales. So, yeah, what is a fairy tale? Well, it's described in Webster's Dictionary as a story, uh, for children mostly, involving fantastic forces and beings such as fairies, wizards, goblins. And it also notes that the first usage of the term fairy tale is from 1635, which seems about right to me. 
However, folklore and tell, telling tall tales goes back way beyond that. Despite not being called fairy tales, uh, tales of extraordinary events have been told for as long as there have been people to tell them. From China to Rome and everywhere in between has their own version of folklore's myths, or fairy tales if you will, but perhaps none is more well known, in terms of near ancient texts anyway, as Aesop of the 6th century BC. His works and writings might be the first noted fairy tales, again, even if they weren't called as such. Most of us have at least heard the name Aesop, but in case you wanted a little bit more background on just who he was, Aesop was a Greek slave who used his wit and all-around cleverness to free himself from his captors and even rise to become an advisor to the kings of his time. He became well-known for his allegorical tales such as The Rabbit and the Hare and The Ant and the Grasshopper, which, again, I'm sure we're all quite familiar with. Now, I want to reiterate at this point this cast isn't about fairy tales or their history so much. It's a bit of a background and context for fairy tales and fairies, which I'm talking about right now. During my research, I did find an earlier text mention of fairies, and that was in Homer's The Iliad, where he notes, watery fairies dance in mazy rings. So that just goes to show that the word or term fairy goes back to 1000 BC. Now, being of Greek origin, the Iliad mentioning fairies isn't overly surprising. Greek mythology and lore does feature a lot of fairy-like creatures, such as satyrs and nymphs, and any other number of mythological creatures. After that, the next mention I could find was in Gervais of Tilbury, a somewhat famous folklorist in England in the 12th century. And he tells of a type of fairy known as a portune in his Adia Imperiale. And in said text, he classifies them as helpful, if not a little mischievous, in nature. They were known to make themselves invisible and hitch a ride on a lone horseman in the night. After a little while, they would take hold of the reins and lead the horse through some muddy swampland. They would then fly away, laughing loud enough for the rider to hear it. Now, to me, this sounds kind of like a dick move, but it's ultimately pretty harmless. It's just like a bored spirit having some fun with whomever they can find. So it seems that the fairies have a sort of mischievous nature about them, as Gervais uh, does mention. I've also heard this from other stories. Surprisingly, there has been a lot of literature on the subject. The fairy mythology of England was published in the People's Journal all the way back in 1847, which makes mention of fairies in the time of King Arthur with the passage, The elf queen with her jolly company danced full oft in many a green mead. So that's pretty much Old English speak for a happy queen danced among a bunch of booze. That's what I took from it anyway. The article goes on to chronicle that the origin of fairies comes from the Druidic beliefs, which does make sense to me. Druids are known to be one with nature and the elements. They would craft medicines and other sort of ointments from wild plant life and worship the lords and lady of the forest. And since fairies too have an affinity with the woodland... It does make sense. It would probably be that the Druids have a very special link with the fairies. Uh, a fellow by the name of Dr. Percy wrote, Our Saxon ancestors, long before they left their German forests, believed in the existence of a kind of diminutive demon or middle species between man and spirit, whom they called Dwegar or dwarfs. 
Now, dwarves and fairies aren't something you often hear about together too often. Perhaps this is nothing more than a turn of speech. However, later in the same article, it makes mention of elves as well, making me think that perhaps different names are interchangeable or even synonymous with one another. Another interesting little fact about these guys are that they tend to appear in different cultures. And while cultures describe them in their own ways, with unique traits to the geological location, they do share commonalities. That's one thing I've always found incredible about lore, mythology, and all that sort of fun stuff, is when they are cross-referenced between cultures about being the same sort of things. Now, the internet didn't exist back then, obviously, and I doubt these cultures that are worlds away from another would spend any communication about fairies or cryptids or strange creatures that they happen to find or come across. It's more likely they would trade or even more likely talk about war or go to war with one another. So when ancient Persia describes the peri and the Scandinavians describe their duergrass and that they share descriptors and traits, there's something to be taken notice there. Now before I get into some more stories and whatnot that I found in books and online, I want to leave you with one last direct quote from the People's Journal of England. In the early part of the last century, the winter's evening's conversation used to often turn on fairies, which were then seriously believed in. And Bourne tells us that people would affirm that they had frequently seen and heard, nay, that they were some still living who had stolen away by them, fairies of course, and confined for seven years. Mr. Knightley has conversed with a girl from Norfolk, who said that she had often seen fairies and also and also with a person from Somerset who seemed to have no doubt of their actual existence. We've seen a curious canonical stone found near Shodensham, Norfolk, and we're told that similar ones were often found there. The people call them fairy loaves, and say while they keep one in their house, they will never want bread. We have also heard that people in the remote parts of the West Riding of Yorkshire talk of the Bogart, a domestic spirit of the Robin Goodfellow species. It does go a bit beyond that, saying people in Cornwall still believed in fairies and respected the pixies, but modern science was starting to destroy that fantasy, and that was back in 1847. Science has come a very, very long way since then, but that hasn't stopped people from having encounters with them. The first one I found was in a book called Green Witchcraft, written by Anne Mura. And I read this book about two years ago, uh, when I decided to do some more research for this cast, in particular the book instantly jumped to mind. While she mentions fairies as being a part in many ceremonies, rites, and rituals, she does note at least one counter that's worth mentioning. Anne also notes that their mischievous nature by saying, You can tell... When fairies are attracted to your home, when things start to go missing. But just as suddenly as they vanish, they'll reappear without warning, sometime later. She attributes this behavior back to their natural curiosity and, as I've mentioned a few times, their mischievousness. But ultimately, all they want to do is learn and examine things before putting them back. She also states that they'll sometimes leave gifts as well, especially if they don't want to return said item. Her story recants the tale of her daughter when she was just a little girl and gave her something called a fairy cup. It was small and perfectly sized for said fairies. However, one day the cup 
disappeared, and this upset her daughter greatly. Of course, she told her that the fairies have taken it, but not to worry, because the fairies just wanted it back. Shortly thereafter, an engraved gold ring appeared in her room that fit her perfectly. See, that's something of tangible evidence, like the story of Peter Toma in the last cast. There's something that we can evaluate and break down. Here we have a missing cup and a brand new ring that fit the little girl perfectly. Now, I do feel I have to take a slight skeptical look at this, and I don't want to come off as that I believe or deny anything and everything that I read. And I have to look at this in a sort of tooth fairy style case. Teeth go missing, money appears, but it's always the parents. I don't want to discredit the story that Anne has told, as it seems genuine in her belief and her background in witchcraft and uh, paganism. But who's to say she didn't remove the cup and give the ring to her daughter? Perhaps she did it to solidify her belief in her daughter, to pass it down. Something like an indoctrination that uh, happens to most kids in modern churches or conventional religions today. But since I can't prove that, I'll have to take her story as truthful. I just didn't want you to think I'm easily swayed and believe, like I said, in everything I hear at face value. I do kind of go through everything in my mind and pick the most logical reasoning for whatever's happening. Remember, I am a fully trained and licensed private investigator. So what kind of PI would I be if I didn't have a more than, you know, one point of view on things? You can't let your own theory determine the outcome of the case has to go the other way around now besides Anne's story here now back to the point of fairies i have come across a few others in my research a few that were near deadly in fact such as the case of neil colton in ireland in 1853 the story goes neil his brother and his cousin were walking behind their house while their cousin had gone off to pick some berries while they were outside they heard some music playing off in the distance naturally they were curious, they're kids after all, and decided to go investigate further. And that's when they spotted a circle of small people dancing. Curious, they surely thought. So they moved. Even more curious they were, so they moved in a little closer. Well, this was probably a bad idea as it seemed to anger at least one of the fairies who broke from the group and hit the cousin across the face in what was described as a green rush. Terrified, the trio ran for the house. But upon reaching it, the cousin, who had been hit in the face, fell to the ground in a heap, supposedly dead. Rumor has it the Colton father ran and grabbed a priest who read some psalms and struck the girl hard enough, waking her up from her death-like state. It turns out that when the girl was struck, she latched onto Neil out of reflex, and ultimately that saved her life. The priest, who was on site, went on to inform them that had she not grasped her cousin, she would have been taken off by the fairies forever. That story has sprung up all over the internet, but it's most prominently featured in the book The Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, written by W.Y. Evans Wentz. In my research, this was really the first time I've heard of the fairy folk turning violent, or in more than a trickster sort of way anyway. There are any number of reasons to why they attacked, or the purpose behind wanting to take the girl, from it being as simple as they were peeved at their dance being spotted, or they just wanted to take a prize back to the realm for their queen. One thing we have to remember about fairies is that it's highly possible they aren't from our world, so to speak anyway. 
While they do reside here at times, it's most likely that they have their own realm that is kind of parallel to ours. Given their magical nature, they most likely have found the ability to cross over between realms and visit us, and even bring us to their own, should they feel like it, of course. The story of Neil Colton is a fascinating one to me. Although there aren't a lot of details on the events, it still uses names and is accurate to the lore leading up to that point. Another thing we tend to forget about pixies is that they are creatures with their own survival instinct. They appear small and weak to us, but it's a given that they are more likely than not highly intelligent and probably far more powerful than we are as humans. In fact, in some cultures, these delightful little spirits are called demons, although not in the traditional hellfire and brimstone sense. Any mystical creature from fairies to succubi are classified as a form of demon. Again, it's my understanding that demons tend to have at least one trait in common. They can be very aggressive. You just have to travel back in time and talk to the Colton clan to confirm that. Now, I've come across quite a few stories, and there's one thing most of them have in common. They take place in England, or in the general UK. I've wondered, what is it about that place, that specific mass of land that attracts these creatures to it? Sure, it's often reported that fairies are a big part of the Celtic and Druidic cultures, but they didn't create them, did they? It's often said that worship and belief lends a lot of power to whatever it is that is being worshipped. But I doubt that they could concoct such a thing from thin air. It's my belief that there's something about this geological location, that the United Kingdom has some sort of benefit to them, or maybe it's just a convenient place for the fairies to live there. Now, I only mention that as a nice little segue into the next story that I found published by the Transaction of the Devonshire Association in 1928. This is indeed a little more recent than most, taking place in the 1920s and not so much ancient times, or even a few hundred years ago. A woman by the name of Mrs. G. Herbert wrote into the association about two instances she had experienced. They must have seemed legitimate enough for this publication to publish them, so here they are. In 1897, when Herbert was about seven years old, she spotted a little man no more than 18 inches tall sitting beneath an overhanging boulder in Dartmoor, England. She noted that he had a wizened face and was wearing a pointed hat, kind of like a stereotypical witch's hat, a doublet, and a short little knicker thing. Those are her words exactly from this uh, publication. As suddenly as she had spotted him, he vanished. Poof. Gone. Naturally, the little girl was startled and ran home to tell her mother. Her mother, clearly not the most supportive of women, laughed at her. That was Mrs. Herbert's first account of fairies. Her second comes 28 years later, while one day she was riding horseback through the moors of Dartmoor, a place she was quite familiar with, she became very confused and lost. She didn't know how this could happen as she rode through the moors almost daily. She recognized the landmarks and her surroundings, but she had no idea which way to go. It was around that time she remembered an old trick when being messed with by fairies. She turned her pockets inside out. And suddenly, she remembered everything and made her way home safely. Apparently turning one's pockets out is a powerful fairy charm. The thing about these stories that I find most interesting is that she can recount two tales. 
while the first you could dismiss as childhood imagination, and the second a slight bout of forgetfulness. I mean, how many times have you driven somewhere you'd been to a thousand times and suddenly forgot if it's on the left or the right when you got there? But the fact that it happened to the woman twice makes me wonder if perhaps she's sensitive to people from the fairy realm. We hear of mediums and psychics, or just everyday people who are sensitive to ghosts and spirits, so it's not that far-fetched that people could be sensitive to any number of things, including fairies or any sort of cryptid or myst mystical sort of creature. In the case of Mrs. Herbert, there are two reasonable explanations, however, neither make complete sense. A child wouldn't pretend they'd seen something like that for attention if, you know, she knew her mother's reaction would be, like, laughing at her. Granted, she was seven at the time, but I feel that's old enough to know your parents' personalities and how they would react to such a tale. And maybe she didn't actually see a fairy, but she must have seen something that made her think she saw one. Given that, fast forward 28 years when she experiences another phenomena. Without the luxury of Google Maps and GPS, people had to mentally map out their surroundings so that they wouldn't get lost, especially in a place like Moor. Very swampy, very hilly, very foggy, easy to get lost and turned around. Now, another thing about a moor is there's never really any great big town or city nearby that you could stop into if you get lost and ask for directions. If you got lost, that could very well be the end of you. I'm confident that Miss Herbert uh, knew these moors and the fact that she lost her way but found again after she used the fairy charm of turning her pockets out is a pretty good eyewitness testimony. When people tell tales such as these, I always assume they want attention first, especially if it's more outlandish in nature. But tabloids weren't really a thing in 1928, and the attention she would have gotten for such tales as these wouldn't really have been much. She wasn't going to land a huge reality TV show contract or start the first paranormal investigation program. She had a couple of strange encounters that she felt she needed to share with anybody who would listen. And the fact she doesn't give her first name leads me to believe she actually experienced what she claims. Now, I did find a whole lot of stories. There's lists on Listverse about fairy encounters, and I didn't want to run through them all simply because it's more the same. I remember there's a story about a mailman who had his bags being thrown off his carriage back in the early 1900s or late 1800s. Uh, and he was late delivering parcels and the mail, and people were mad at him. But he had to explain that fairies were throwing his bags off of his cart, and there was nothing he could do. Most of them are mischievous in nature like that. And I like to think that if these creatures do exist, and again, I keep an open mind, and people do seem to be sensitive towards them, which lends credence to their existence. Now, there's always tricks to finding said spirits and fairies from the fairy realm. You can leave gifts for them in your own house. You can welcome them in. All you have to do is be open-minded and open-hearted. You can also search for fairy holes in trees and wooded areas. Usually it's a knot on a tree, and that's a gateway to the fairy realm, some would say. And you can leave gifts for them there. And after a while, if you keep going back, they may present themselves to you. All these little things are very fascinating to me. But I'm going to wrap it up there. And I will be back in a few weeks with another cast. I haven't decided what I'm going to do just yet. But it will be something. So keep listening. And as always, if you want to support me, 
you can go to my Patreon page and make a pledge. It'll help with more photography, more pictures, and more podcasts. So you can do that at patreon.com slash horrorshots. And as always, you can visit my website at uh, horrorshotsblog.wordpress.com. Furthermore, I want to thank uh, Blueberry for hosting this cast. To a degree, anyway. I've transferred some stuff over there, and I've got a coupon code for you. If you have a podcast of your own and want your first month free on either stats or a premium account, you can do so by entering the promo code HORRORSHOTS upon checkout. That helps me, and it helps you, and it helps everybody involved. So if that's something that interests you and you have your own cast and you're looking to get out there, Blueberry is a good place to go. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com. Once again, I want to thank you all for listening. My name is Casey, and you've been listening to the Horror Shots Podcast.